You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Sedanand Dumay. Sedanand is a columnist at the Wall Street Journal and a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is the author of My Friend the Fanatic Travels with a Radical Islamist, which charts the rise of Islamic radicalism in Indonesia. Um, that was in 2009. And he's currently writing a book on India under Modi. He's also a regular guest on a podcast called Grand Tamasha, to which I am an occasional listener. It's one of my sources of uh, Indian news, along with um, the Hindu and Quint and the Caravan and um, a couple of others, which maybe I'll put into the show notes for people who are not very familiar with Indian politics and are English speaking and want to get a little bit of a taste. Um, so welcome, Sadanand. Sadanand. I keep wanting to say Sadanand, even though I know it's wrong. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, uh, well, thank you for having me on your show. I'm really looking forward to this. My pleasure. So I wanted to start by talking about the recent laws which have been rather ludicrously called the love jihad laws. Um, I mean, to any normal person, love jihad sounds like some kind of a, a joke. Um, it's like, uh, it's, it's the only time I'm ever likely to want to be a jihadi. Um, you know, being a love jihadi sounds marvelous. <laughs> but um, the recent laws that have been instituted in, I think, four BJP-controlled states, which are obstructing people's ability to um, to get married to people of other faiths, particularly Hindu-Muslim marriages. And I do have, oh, sorry, <laughs> I just say very briefly, I do have a personal interest in this aspect of things because, of course, um, I, I I was the child of a um, a um, interfaith marriage, and um, my my father was an Indian Parsi born in Bombay, and I grew up in I I grew up partly in Karachi and then came to the UK in the eighties, um, and um, I've also uh, recently spent several years um, in India. Two years, not several. I spent recently spent two years in Bombay reconnecting with my Parsi past. Well, that's very interesting. So I have, you know, I wrote a, a column about this uh, just a couple of weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal um, on Love Jihad. And I agree with you that, you know, if this wasn't so tragic, uh, you know, we could all be chuckling about it because it's simply ludicrous on the face of it. Um, you know, in a nutshell, uh, the idea is that uh, every time a, a Hindu woman falls in love with a Muslim man, Muslim man is co committing an act of religious warfare, and that in fact this is some kind of deep-rooted conspiracy. And as with many conspiracy theories, there are different uh, variants. 
but essentially it sort of uh, uh, the people who believe in this conspiracy theory believe that there is an organized movement by Muslims to entrap uh, innocent Hindu damsels and turn them into baby making factories for the for the spread of uh, radical Islam uh, in India and beyond. Now, the problem with this is that this has gone from being a theory that was completely on the fringes of society. Uh, you know, this is for you know your 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 the, the most uh, wild-eyed, uh, crazy uh, people hanging out on the fringes of the Hindu nationalist movement. I mean, not even the mainstream Hindu nationalist movement. Those are the sort of people who propounded this idea just a decade ago. Um, and now, unfortunately, it is firmly mainstream. Uh, when this podcast airs and when I tweet it, you will get dozens, if not scores, of people responding angrily uh, with uh, stories, cherry-picked stories, but stories about some poor Hindu woman who was betrayed by a Muslim man. Uh, some of these stories, maybe even many of these stories may be true, but what we're seeing over here is very similar to what we saw uh, in the South, in the American South at one point, which was this idea that, uh, that, that any white woman who married a black man was, uh, you know, sure to be sold into some kind of, you know, white slavery uh, and in fact, in India too, these you know these rumors have uh, they go back. Uh, they were very popular in the 1920s uh, when Hindu nationalism was just being born. Uh, and the idea is to paint the Muslim man as some kind of awful predator and to play on uh, anxieties in uh, among Hindus. And uh, essentially use that to uh, beat down any uh, beat down the Muslim community specifically, but also to discredit the idea of interfaith marriages. Five BJP states, not four, but five BJP states have either passed laws or are considering passing laws about, about this. Uh, many Hindi news channels uh, treat this not as a goofy conspiracy theory, but as a mere statement of fact. It is now widely believed. And the consequences in the real world are quite awesome, awful. Uh, the, just the other day, there was a, a, a Muslim couple had their uh, wedding broken up by the authorities because someone anonymously complained to the police and claimed that it was a, an act of love jihad taking place. So this poor couple was hauled up to the police station and uh, then the woman's brother had to intervene. He came, had to come there and point out that they were, in fact, both Muslim. Uh, but there itself, just, just the, the fact that, the, that we are now having to argue that, look, in fact, they were both Muslim, therefore this is not love jihad, just shows how much ground uh, the forces behind this conspiracy have gained. Because in an ideal world, we would actually be laughing at their face and saying, well, so what? If, even if the, one of the persons was a Muslim and the other person was a Hindu, and even if in, in, and because this is a, essentially a you know, patriarchal idea, so what if a, Muslim, if a Hindu woman falls in love with a Muslim man and wants to marry him? 
but that the capacity to even have that conversation uh, outside of elites has been diminished dramatically. And, and to me, that's very worrying. And also, so, so what if uh, somebody wants to convert to another religion? Um, I mean, that's something that I have also noticed that there is a lot of hysteria in some circles about Christians in particular, quote unquote, evangelizing and proselytizing and converting um, Hindus. But I mean, unless the person is being abducted and forcibly baptized or something, uh, if you're an adult and you somebody proselytizes you and you choose to convert your their religion, that is surely surely should be your free choice. Well, that's actually the nub of the issue. Uh, so even if you look at the most recent uh, so-called love jihad law in Uttar Pradesh, it's really uh, folded under a broader anti-conversion effort. And at the heart of it, uh, the way I see it is that. There really is a poor understanding of and very little acceptance of what uh, we in the West would call freedom of conscience. Now, I know, you know, educated people, liberal people, people who don't necessarily have an axe to grind against uh, Muslims or Christians. But if you tell them that, well, you know, here's a couple and they got married and uh, one person chose to uh, embrace the other person's faith and become either uh, Muslim or Christian, uh, very often uh, what, I, what I hear, what I get pushed back. And it's like, well, why would you do that? I mean, that, that, why, why should you have to do that? And a, and, a, and a sense of that this is extremely unfair and unjust and the roots of this, of course, lie in the fact that uh, Hindus don't proselytize traditionally. Mm. And because Hindus themselves don't proselytize, I think many Hindus have trouble grasping the idea of proselytization. And this is something that the Hindu right has capitalized on very well. And my own view on this, I'm not a religious person, uh, my own view on this has has long been that uh, you know this is just religion is just like software running on your brain and you know if you don't like the one running on your brain pick something else or pick nothing I mean if you know this this is it's just entirely up to the individual but many many people in India do not view it that way and in fact they would view freedom of conscience or some of the more sophisticated. Hindu nationalist thinkers would view freedom of conscience itself as a kind of Christian invention. Mm. And so this is, this is the nub of the issue. Uh, are you an individual? Can this movement come to terms with individual rights? Or will group rights always triumph? And what we're seeing in, in, the, in these love jihad laws is the triumph of a kind of uh, group identity. Uh, and it's really, you know, quite similar to what we see in many Islamic countries. So for example, in Malaysia, if you are, uh, if a Muslim marries a, a non-Muslim, the non-Muslim always has to convert to Islam. Now, it's not as though India is forcing everyone to convert to Hinduism. It's not, it's not quite as bad as what you see in, in, in many Islamic countries. But the, the essence of this, uh, the essence of it is to prevent people 
from one religion, in this case, the dominant religion, Hinduism, from leaving the fold. Mm. It seems also very um, paternalistic. It's as if um, they are, as a, as a young woman, you have to answer to your, to your father, to your um, family, for who you're choosing to marry as a consenting adult. It's deeply paternalistic. Um, you know, the whole idea that a woman is some kind of, you know, communal property is what undergirds this, right? You are, as an unmarried woman, you belong not only to yourself, but you belong to the larger community. Uh, a family member can come in and file a, a love jihad case. And in reality, it often means that local busybodies, maybe the local uh, members of a Hindu nationalist group like the Bajrang Dal, can just come in and, uh, you know, rough up uh, members of an, inter- of, interfaith, of an interfaith relationship. And in fact, we saw a really heart-wrenching video the other, come up the other day where a woman is being forcibly separated from her husband. And she, she was screaming out loud saying that, look, I'm, a, I'm an adult and I love this man deeply. And they had just been separated and, and, and because the... Uh, the allegation was that uh, the man was, she hadn't even converted, but they wanted to investigate love jihad. So it's kind of, you know, hysteria. Uh, it's very ugly. Uh, it is definitely uh, uh, definitely a setback mm. uh, for women's rights. But the point here is that many women don't see it that way. Yes, of course. So, you know, so they are willing to, you know, uh, willing to see themselves in this case first and foremost as members of a community under siege, and some of the anti-Muslim hysteria that has been whipped up has become so intense that it's not even possible to have a, a calm discussion about this. I mean, I mean, I'm actually fascinated by the people who do believe in it, and I've had conversations with them. And so much of what they are talking about is colored either by events that have taken place or are taking place in other parts of the world. So, for example, many of, many of them bring up the fact that the Islamic State enslaved Yazidi women, uh, which they did. Uh, many of them point to the fact that in Pakistan, it's not uncommon for powerful landlords to abduct minor Hindu girls and uh, marry them and convert them by force to Islam. Uh, that sort of stuff, uh, unfortunately, does happen. But to go from there to pretending that this is something that is happening uh, in, some, in, in India, which is 80% Hindu, where the police are overwhelmingly Hindu, where the Hindu nationalists have won uh, power in back-to-back elections, twice between 2014 and 2019 where the media is dominated by hindus and very and to a large extent is in fact deeply sympathetic to the government uh, you know to to claim that this is something happening in india and that we should all be worried uh, more about oppression by muslims as opposed to muslims being oppressed um, tells you something about the moment in which we're living so how common are interfaith marriages in India? Do you know any stats for that, Sadanant? We don't have data, but anecdotally, they are extremely uncommon. 
most Indians, as you know, still marry within their subcaste. So even intercaste weddings are quite rare. And uh, interfaith marriages are even more rare. Now, there is an element of, uh, you know, class over here. Um, and it's certainly true that the the higher up you go and the more educated you are and the more likely you are to speak English, uh, you know, you, you these are, it's, it's not uncommon. I know many people, in fact, I could off the top of my head tell you uh, about six Muslim women I know who are married to Hindu or Jain men. But of course, these stories never get told by the love jihad people because they are obsessed with the idea of Muslim men marrying Hindu women. Uh, in Bollywood, of course, interfaith marriages are very common. But then again, that's again, you know, you're talking about a particular subculture that is extremely cosmopolitan and that is uh, part of the elite. But the short answer to your question is that we don't have we don't have uh, data, and this is uh, not a common occurrence at all. Mm, yes, I do also know a couple, but again, my personal Indian friends are definitely not representative of the general population. I also know a couple, a Hindu man and Muslim woman who are married and have a son. Yeah, so you know, when if you talk to Hindu nationalists about this, what they'll say to you is they'll say that, well, look, um, Hindu society is more liberal than Islamic society, and which means that uh, Hindu women are more likely to go and go to go to be, be unchaperoned when they go to college, for example, and therefore more likely to meet Muslim men and be, in their words, lured away. And, you know, it's certainly true that, um, in part because there is a, a correlation between uh, between class and conservatism, it's certainly, you know, true that uh, many Muslims in India uh, are conservative and that some of in some of these conservative families, uh, the daughters of the house are, you know, are, are, are not encouraged to mingle with outsiders and so on. So, you know, what they would, so there may be some, some truth to that, the fact that uh, uh, perhaps as a percentage, if we were to hazard a guess, perhaps it is more common for Hindu women to marry Muslim men than it is for Muslim women to marry Hindu men. So we don't have data, but I think that's a, that's a pl- that's plausible um, and is probably even likely. And if you force me to bet, I would say that that is probably the case. But it it begs the question. I mean, why should this be uh, an issue in the first place? Um, and in a in a normal in a liberal democracy, you you know you can say that. Well, I may not personally like that, but you certainly don't have the right to pass laws to impose your personal preferences on other human beings. Absolutely. Um, it's, I, also, it's difficult enough to find love as it is. Um, we shouldn't be preventing trying to obstruct people who want to marry each other, who, who freely want to marry each other, which is not that common in India, frankly. Yeah, and 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 similarly, you know, the point you raised earlier—that you know, a question of—I mean, they have this whole idea that you have to prove that your conversion was in good faith. 
So, for example, in Uttar Pradesh, now what 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 could happen is that, uh, uh, say, a Hindu woman marries a Muslim man and converts freely of her own will to Islam, the man can still be arrested, and then they'll have to go through some elaborate rigmarole where you have to prove that the that the conversion was in fact um, not not by was was not forced in some way, and by force they mean anything like for example even if you say that well if you join my religion you will have a place in heaven that can be in, that is interpreted as 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 unfair so essentially what they're trying to do is say that you cannot convert out of hinduism but they don't want to say that explicitly because i think that that would of course that would be unconstitutional but instead what they do is they put all they make all kinds of you know, they make it uh, uh, the idea of what is a good faith conversion versus a, a conversion that is not done for the right reasons is just so fuzzy, and it's left in the essentially in the eye of the beholder, uh, as compared to say in uh, most uh, in all liberal democracies where it it really doesn't matter. Like I mean, let's just you know, for example, so many Christians I see on on Twitter are attacked by Hindu nationalists, and they're called rice bags. Mm-hmm. Right, which is the idea is that well, you converted or you gave up your faith for a bag of rice, and my point is that well, what if someone does want to give up their faith for a bag of rice? How is it your business, right? So let's just say someone does say that well, you know, hey, you know that that bag of rice looks really great. Please give me that bag of rice. I want to join your faith. How is it anyone else's problem? It's the most extraordinary victim blaming also suggesting that they were so poor and desperate they had no other option and that is somehow supposedly shameful. Right, but you see this all the time. Mm. Just go mm. go to Twitter and put, oh, put yes, in the I, word I know. <laughs> put in the words put in the word rice bag and you'll see this. Yes. And again it's this idea that and again I don't I don't blame Hindu nationalists for wanting there to be more Hindus. Just as, you know, that's that's what religious people do. I mean, Christians want there to be more Christians and, you know, religious Muslims want the world to have more Muslims. And then this is it's just that so I don't blame them for that. Um but what I what I blame them for is uh trying to use these kind of devious uh underhand methods to get there. Why can't they simply say that, well, okay, you have a religion and uh, I've got another set of ideas, this is my religion, and I think this is a lot better. Come to here, 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 take care of two bags of rice if that's what they think is going on. Um, and if they think that something else is going on and then someone else has, you know, has a more attractive metaphysical promise, then come up with your own promise to match it. And uh, it's this this idea that... Uh, that religious conversion must be judged uh, through the eyes of people who don't believe in it. Uh, I think that's that's fundamentally problematic. Um, so I think there are. I listened recently to a 2017 talk that you gave, which I will put into the show notes. Everything, anything that we allude to in passing that I can, I'll put into the show notes. So don't worry about that. Um, but in that 2017 talk, you were focusing on the kinds of weaknesses in Indian secular democracy to begin with, which have provided a kind of opening, um, if you like, that has made the Hindu right, Hindu eth- ethno-nationalism more appealing. 
whenever I have these kinds of discussions, people think that that I'm somehow justifying um, a phenomenon rather than trying to understand a phenomenon. But I I think it's very important to understand. And the first one, and perhaps the most controversial in this context, um, is what, uh, what that you mentioned were problems within the Muslim community itself in India. So I, I personally used to write and focus a lot on problems with Muslim extremism um, and even just Muslim conservatism, ordinary misogynistic, homophobic Muslim conservatism. Um, and I was uh, involved with a Quilliam Circle Majid Nawaz's organization. I mean, informally, I was, I subscribed to their, to them. Um, Before Majid went off the deep end. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, dear Majid, um, I'm just ignoring his, Majid's like post 2018 work. Um, <laughs> his post 2018 oeuvre. Um, but I, I used to be a huge admirer of Majid's and of that whole enterprise. And then uh, when after I became aware of what was going on in India, and then af especially after I'd been living in India and had also been dating a Muslim, Indian Muslim, I really changed my focus and I stopped. Um, talk I very rarely now talk about Islam. And it's not because I have changed any of my views. It's only because I'm more focused on the problem of um, Hindu extremism right now. That is more pressing to me, um, just to me personally. But when I was listening to your talk, I wondered if that was a mistake. Because although only a, only a tiny number of Indian Muslims have been radicalized have joined ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Um, India doesn't have a huge number of Muslim terrorists, but and it has a vast number of Muslims. Nevertheless, there really are problems with conservatism within the Muslim community. While I was there, for example, there was a big protest about attempts to end the triple talaq uh, provision, whereby a man can a Muslim man can divorce his wife by just saying talak three times, um, and leaving her in some cases without proper child support or um, financial stability. There are all kinds of of repercussions of this, and there was a massive protest of people who wanted this to continue to be legally permissible. And they were almost all men. It was this sea of of angry men and uh, women in burkas. Um, and I can see how that is that is also not ideal. So you know, um, um, like you, I used to. I I was quite focused on uh, on radical Islam or Islamism or political Islam, whatever you want to call it. In fact, my first book, as you mentioned. Uh, was about the rise of this phenomenon in Indonesia, which had long been regarded as the Muslim country which was most impervious to inroads by uh, radical Islam, but ended up has ended up actually going in quite an alarming direction. And uh, 
And I think that some of the this has been a problem not just in India, but it's been a it's been in a pro, been a problem with uh, the left or the liberal left in particular. And I think in some ways I understand your instincts because at this moment in time when Muslims are under siege and they are being attacked uh, quite unfairly by bigots in various places, uh, it just seems unfair to point out problems that exist in the Islamic community. Uh, I personally think that's a mistake. I think that we should speak up about uh, radicalism and about illiberal ideas, uh, no matter where they arise. And it's certainly true that India had, if, if that part of the reason that the BJP rose was because Indian secularism was, uh, had, had many flaws. And if you want to go back to this, it goes back, I mean, the history really goes back to the independence struggle. And what Congress wanted to do, particularly under Gandhi, the promise of Congress was that Hindus and Muslims would together fight to kick out the British, and that the Muslims would find that their customs and practices and religion, as interpreted by the clerics, uh, particularly uh, Sunni uh, clerics in the Hindi heartland would be better protected by Congress than by the British. This was basically the the the, the simplified version of the uh, the promise of the Congress Party. Now, in reality, many Muslims, some Muslims bought this. Many Muslims did not. We ended up you end up seeing the rise of the Muslim League and Jinnah and and partition. And uh, and of course, at that and that at that point, uh, many Muslims move from India to Pakistan, but the vast majority stay back in India. Whereas on the other side, you have a vast exodus of uh, the very large majority of uh, Hindus and Sikhs from what was Pakistan, and they 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 come into India. So now the problem really was how was India to deal with the fact that partition had occurred. Now, what the founding fathers, what people like Nehru, what decided was to act as though essentially that partition had never happened. So what Congress had promised before independence was that Hindus and Muslims would live together as equals and that Muslim practices and Muslim religion would continue as it had before. And that was essentially what they tried to deliver. So, for example, in the 1950s, uh, Nehru undertook this, at the time, very controversial modernization of Hindu personal law. So, for example, he he raised the age of consent. He ended polygamy for Hindu men. Polygamy had existed, was was still uh, legal under the British. But when he undertook this modernization of Hindu personal law, he did not at the same time uh, modernize Muslim personal law. He left in place polygamy. He left in place the triple talaq. He left in place the um, inheritance laws being different for sons and daughters. And the logic at the time uh, was that 
the Muslims of India had just been through this traumatic business of partition. Many of them had fled. It was a weak and vulnerable community. There was also the fact that Congress had styled itself as a, as a protector of, in many ways, of Islamic conservatism. Um, some of the uh, people who led the movement for Pakistan were some of the most uh, westernized, um, anglicized uh, Muslims, people coming out of the Aligarh project, whereas many of the Muslims who backed Congress were, in fact, traditional clerics in places like Uttar Pradesh. Um, the reality is a little bit more mud- muddled than that because you had some clerics who actually did back the Pakistan movement. But I'm just kind of I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit over here. Wasn't it also? Wasn't there also a social factor there? So wealthier um, Muslims uh, tended to move to Pakistan, where, whereas those who are less wealthy were less mobile and were more likely to stay put. Yes, for sure, um, there wasn't there there was that element. But India also lost a large chunk of its Muslim middle class. So mm. it's not it's not only the wealthy that that it's not only a, so disproportionately the wealthy moved, but I think many middle class Muslims uh, moved also. So and it was already uh, the the Muslim middle class in undivided India was anyway smaller than the than the Hindu middle class. And the other feeling back in the 1950s was that secularism was on the ascendant. If you looked around the world at that time, you looked at Indonesia, Sukarno was in power, you looked at, uh, at, at, at Egypt in the 1950s and the 1960s was under Nasser, uh, the Ataturk's legacy was still very strong, the Turkish army was a formidable force for secularism. And so there was a general sense that the Muslims would modernize on their own and there was no reason for a Hindu majority secular state to force the issue. Uh, unfortunately, that modernization did not occur. And we saw a couple of events in the 1980s that actually played a very large part uh, in making in, in the rise of Hindu nationalism. Uh, the first was the so-called Shabano case where uh, Muslim woman was divorced uh, suddenly and unjustly by her husband, and she fought in court and was given uh, an alimony. Was finally granted alimony, and it was a it was a pitiable sum. I mean, um, you'd have to check the numbers, but it was you know something like I don't know ten dollars a month or something 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 absurd like that. And the government at the time, which was a Congress government led by Rajiv Gandhi. They passed a law, uh, essentially in favor, pushed by uh, hardline clerics, to outlaw that alimony because the clerical argument was that this interfered with Sharia, and that the courts had no business giving this woman alimony. So that was the first thing. And then some people forget that India was in fact the first country to ban the satanic verses. And again, this was after protests by Muslims because Rushdie was seen as having blasphemed. And both of these things, the, the, the Shabano case and the Rushdie affair, were used very effectively by the BJP in the late 80s and early 90s when it wasn't really much of a force to argue that there was something wrong with Indian secularism. 
And at that time, the term that the BJP's L.K. Advani would use was pseudo-secularism. So his argument at that time was not that the BJP was not, was not secular. It was that the Congress wasn't really truly secular. It was pseudo-secular and that the Hindu nationalists, by contrast, would deliver genuine secularism. And I think that if those... I mean, I understand the context, and I understand that the people who uh, stood for that Nehruvian model were people of goodwill. And some of this is also just cultural, right? Like in polite mm-hmm. society, it's, you know, it's only the most boorish kind of, you know, at least in, in, in a place like India, only the most boorish kind of person, you know, sits and starts picking apart what's wrong with another person's religion, Right. But you normally you don't you don't do that. You sort of, you know, that's that's their business and you focus on your own problems. And that's what the Hindu elites tried to do in the decades after independence. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out. And then at the same time, you, you know, you have the uh, OPEC oil boom. You have the large numbers of Indians going to the Middle East, places like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. And you have. Uh, conservatism actually growing among uh, among Indian Muslims, and there has there's no question that this was very poorly handled in India, because the secularist elite essentially was frozen in the 1950s, and they didn't recognize that the world had changed, uh, Islam had changed, and the, the the nature of the problem in India had changed. Uh, at the same time, you had this the question of demographics, where the Muslim population, which had been reduced to about you know just a shade under ten percent after partition, um, was growing more rapidly than the Hindu population, and particularly in some places, a combination of, of population growth and migration in places like Assam and Bengal that kind of created created conflict. Then you had the ethnic cleansing of the Kashmiri Hindus in, in, uh, in, from the valley, which uh, hap- happened in the early 1990s. And so all of that kind of, you know, uh, combined... Uh, combined with you know things like the rise of the Taliban, the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas, and so on, it created this sense of anxiety. And what secularists were unable to do was to address this anxiety, um, to address the problem of radicalism, which was present among a small fringe, uh, while also firmly pointing out that this has nothing to do with the vast majority of Indian Muslims. Uh, They just failed at that task. Mm. Well, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, one of the problems in India is that there are so many um, double standards in place, uh, legally in place, and always with the with very justifiable and under, for very justifiable and understandable um, historical reasons, in order to, for ex- for example, I'm thinking about reservations, which is for those who are not familiar with uh, Indian politics, reservations is a term for a kind of affirmative action program um, within certain um, pro- within higher education and certain professions in which certain numbers of places 
are reserved, that's why it's called reservations, for members of specific castes, etc. And those kinds of affirmative action programs in the US and in India even more so, it's like just putting a little band-aid over a gaping wound. And obviously there are there have been huge historical injustices that have led to enormous inequalities today. But the um, so I can see I can see why they why they took that approach. But I think that approach is fundamentally unstable. And having one law for some citizens and a different law for other citizens, or um, having one set of requirements for some people and a different set of requirements for another set of people, that is just fundamentally unstable. It leads to resentment. And I'm not saying that the way in which the resentment expresses itself is is good or justified or logical or or anything else. Um, I'm absolutely not on the side of the um, of Hindutva and the Hindu nationalists, not even one iota. But that is just a very a very rocky system. So there was also a political angle, you know, because what what happened was that because India chose the first past the post system, uh, essentially what it meant was that it's very it's you could win an election um, either for to parliament or to this to a state assembly with as little as say thirty five percent of the vote. And in a country where people vote often along community lines, what this led to was many politicians from overwhelmingly Hindu parties uh, pursuing the so-called Muslim vote. And what they figured was that the shortcut for to get that Muslim vote was to uh, pander to clerics who are, you know, who were the most obscurantist elements in Muslim society. So this is why things like the Rushdi book became an issue. This is why things like Shabano became an issue. And it got locked into politics. And there was a sense that because Hindu society was uh, divided because of caste, all you needed to win an election, and Uttar Pradesh was the classic example of this, was the consolidation of, say, one major, one or two major castes along with the Muslim vote, and you could take power. And so this kind of also contributed to a sense of siege and a kind of anxiety. And if you had to simplify the Hindu nationalist project, essentially what it has been trying to do has been to stitch together a kind of unity among the 80% and to unite them against the 20% that is uh, non-Hindu, but particularly against the 14% that that is Muslim. And on the other side, uh, you know, it's not as though everybody over there was, you know, some upstanding liberals who stood for uh, individual rights. Uh, they certainly did have, you know, they had one one major thing going for them, which is that there is no animus towards Muslims or members of any other religion. But politics, as it played out in large parts of the country, particularly in the Hindu heartland, was a question of uh, group mobilization. And the group mobilization of the Muslims was unfortunately uh, linked to uh, the the ability or the belief that uh, members of the clerical class held disproportionate sway. 
And this is something that secularists like uh, Hamid Dalwai were writing about uh, as early as the 1960s. So it was almost as kind of a design flaw in Indian politics. But like you, I'm just sort of, you know, I'm pointing out this background not to justify what has come, but I'm just to, just to give, give listeners a sense of what allowed these changes to occur. Mm. But, but what's interesting today, just one more quick thing, mm. is that if you talk to the younger generation of uh, Hindu nationalist thinkers, they don't even pay lip service to secularism anymore. So, right. So 30 years ago, they were saying that, well, you know, those other guys didn't do secularism right. Let us do it right. And now they're saying that, well, we don't need secularism. Who, who needs secularism? We're a, we're a Hindu country and we're a Hindu civilization. And the term that they love banding about is civilizational state. We're a, and this, and, that, that's, that, and uh, that's what we're going to be. And so now, uh, increasingly, we don't even see a pretense of trying to treat all people the same having one set of laws, right? One, you know, longstanding grouse was the fact that Muslims had their own personal law. Um, and all of those things are some, you know, uh, I, I think uh, any, any, any thinking liberal should support. But now those aren't even the, uh, even the goals anymore. Mm. Um, can you just explain for listeners the Muslim personal laws? So this goes back again uh, to British rule. And essentially what you had was on uh, you ha- Muslims were allowed to follow Sharia on civil matters, not on criminal matters, right? So in India, you didn't have the you, you weren't you didn't have people chopping off hands for thieving, and you didn't have any public flogging, or you did none, none of that. So the criminal stuff was not on the books, but on civil law, for example, a Muslim was and still is uh, legally allowed to have four wives. Uh, that was outlawed for Hindus in the 1950s. Uh, the divorce, you, st- you still have triple talaq. What has been outlawed is instant triple talaq, where just in one setting, a man says talaq, 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 and that's the end of the marriage. Um, but you, you still have tri- triple talaq, but you have to sort of say it over a longer period. Again, that's something that would only apply, that would, that only apply to Muslims. There was a difference in the inheritance laws between uh, between uh, Hindus and uh, uh, Hindus and Sikhs on the one hand and Muslims on the other hand. In fact, Christians also have some of their own laws, and so all of that went back to colonial rule, where the British really, you know, saw these communities as distinct communities and entitled to run their own affairs uh, according to their own religion. So that's the that's that's the backdrop. Now, uh, if you were to kind of compare India then to, say, a European country compared to the UK or compared to, the, to France, I think you really can make the case that this is ludicrous, that you're, if, you, if you live in a modern republic, you should all live under the same laws. And I, 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 completely, I completely support that. But then there has to be a sense of fairness in this. And that is what I think is, you know, that... There's no good faith argument. I'll give you one very quick example, and then we can go on to the next question. Um, for the longest time, I would argue, along with other people, against the Hajj subsidy. So India used to have the have a subsidy for the Hajj pilgrimage, which was paid for by the government. And this was a longstanding grouse of Hindu nationalists. And I thought it was a fair grouse. Why the hell should uh, my taxpayer rupees or your taxpayer rupees be used to fund or subsidize someone's, uh, you know, decision to go on the Hajj pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia. 
And uh, then the government scrapped the Hajj pilgrimage, which I think was the right thing to do. And I remember having a discussion with the Hindu nationalist thinker about this. Uh, at the same time, they were subsidizing something else called the Amarnath Yatra, which is, you know, a Hindu pilgrimage. And I was like, well, you shouldn't be so, you shouldn't be subsidizing this either. So it turns out that there wasn't there wasn't a principled objection to government funding pilgrimages. So when they wanted to get rid of the Hajj pilgrimage, the Hindu nationalists used the arguments of liberalism and secularism to say, well, isn't this a terrible idea? But mm-hmm. once they have power themselves, they don't exactly, they're, they're not interested in that. And then if you push them on something like the Amarnath pilgrim, then they'll say, they'll say well, you know, we have always been persecuted for so long. We've just for the first time got a government that's ours. Why are you being so cruel that you want to take away our Amarnath pilgrim? So it's just, a, it's, it's, it's bad faith, yes. right? They're, they're, they're not willing to be fair. I don't even think that they're able to sort of, you know, comprehend fairness uh, in the way that you or I would see it. Yes. Do you agree with, um, I know you're not a religious person, but to what extent do you agree or disagree with Shashi Thurur's argument in his book, Why I Am a Hindu? Um, he's made this argument also, I think, in other places, which is that um, Hindutva have perverted Hinduism from this kind of big, baggy, all-encompassing, welcoming, peaceable, fundamentally pluralistic way of life to a kind of much more Abrahamized sort of lean, mean machine with um, that is is far more narrow and dogmatic, and that it's actually they are influenced in this by a kind of competition, by an implicit sort of competition with Islam in their own minds. Oh, I think there's a lot of truth to what Shashi says. And, you know, these, I mean, the, the, what I always say is that, you know, essentially the, the Sangh Parivar or the RSS has this deep Jamaat-e-Islami envy, right? Mm. They look across the border and they see that, you know, here's a, here's a country, Pakistan, that is 98% Muslim. And uh, there's, you know, there's, there's no question of who is top dog. There's no question of, of passing laws that go against the grain of what the most religious members of the faith think it should be. Um, and, and so there's, there's definitely that uh, sense. Now, there are differences. For example, we don't want to exaggerate the comparisons, right? So, for example, there's no, mm. there's no equivalent of Sharia. Um, part of the problem that we saw in Islam is that because the Sharia was so highly developed and uh, was in place until relatively recently uh, before the advent of European power, uh, um, Islamist groups had something relatively well-defined and relatively recent to turn to. And mm. they spent a lot of time thinking about these things. So, for example, when I was reporting my Indonesia book, I would have conversations and people would, could, could tell me without any thought. Like, I mean, like, immediately they could tell me what, a, what, what an Islamic banking system would look like, for instance, right? There would be no interest. They could tell you, the, the more liberal ones who didn't want to shut down the movie theaters completely would tell you that, well, there has to be segregation of the sexes. Um, they had ideas about governance that were quite detailed. Whereas the Hindus who had 
you know, not really held political power for much of the past 800 years. Uh, there was no such, you know, developed doctrine. And if we had had this conversation 10 years ago, I would have told you that, well, that actually made me much more sanguine about India uh, than I was about, say, a place like Pakistan. Um, but it turns out that you can do a hell of a lot of damage without necessarily having a well-developed program, because it seems that their program is merely to uh, bully and browbeat Muslims, hence things like the Love Jihad law. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I remain much more sanguine about India than about Pakistan. Um, well, actually, so do I. Don't, don't get me wrong there. Yeah. That's a low bar. E- exactly. I mean, that's, that's part of my joke, right? I mean, every time you criticize the, you know, you criticize these guys, they say, well, well, we didn't go and behead anybody in Paris. And I'm like, oh, that's terrific, right? So I mean, <laughs> yeah. sort of, it, it comes, it comes, you know, their, their bumper sticker is better than the Taliban. And I'm like, okay, that's, 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 that's great. But, you know, maybe that isn't the standard you should be aspiring to. They're absolutely world-class limbo dancers. No bar too low. Um, exactly. I mean, as when I was uh, interviewing Salil Tripathi for this podcast, uh-huh. and he said quite rightly that why should you compare India to Pakistan? You should compare India to what India could be. No, absolutely. I mean, Salil and I, uh, you know, we're on the same page on this on this question. Uh, compare India to the best that it can be. See if India is living up to its own constitution, living up to its own values. Uh, why compare it to Pakistan or, 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 or Afghanistan? And what are the implications of its becoming more like Pakistan? I wrote a piece in the Times of India a couple of years ago where, you know, where I asked the question, could India become a Hindu Pakistan? And I concluded that the answer broadly is no, because Pakistan, I mean, religious minorities are virtually non-existent at this point in Pakistan, whereas mm-hmm. More than one in five Indians is not is not a Hindu. So yeah, so so right on the face of it, it's not going to be the same thing. There is no Sharia. There is a secular constitution. There is a very large secular middle class even to this day. There are many people in the media, in the civil service, uh, in civil society who are appalled by what's going on. So let's just say that you know, take 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 off the table the idea that India would would somehow become a mirror image of Pakistan. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't worry that it could become more like Pakistan. And you could see, and you are seeing, in fact, a stifling of free speech. You are seeing an inability to really talk about religious issues rationally or calmly. I was watching a <laughs> was watching a YouTube video the other day, and the debate, I mean, you, this was in Hindi, the, these two guys were having a debate about whether eating a cheeseburger was merely non-Hindu or actively anti-Hindu. Oh, you mean even if you're not a Hindu and you're eating no, your cheese? No, no, if, if you're, if you're, if you're, if, if you're, and this is, I mean, I mean, for, I mean, to me, this is, this is preposterous. I mean, I happen to know, you know, people who are affiliated with the BJP who, you know, when they sort of show up in Washington, D.C. and the first thing they ask me is like, you know, where's the best burger? But and and there there and but those kinds of people now uh, they live in fear they live in terror um, they cannot do publicly what they might do privately and this kind of what I call Hindu takfirism 
uh, is very, very dangerous, right? Because where do you sort of, you know, you start with beef and then you go to something else. I mean, where do you draw the line? And what well, you're people, seeing were, here, people were killed for eating beef, which is absolutely are, extraordinary. People are killed, are lynched for eating beef. And what is even more appalling is that many people don't see this as a moral failing. They will find all kinds of elaborate lawyerly ways to justify it. So they'll say things like, well, it's really a law and order issue. If India had better law and order, this wouldn't be an issue. Or they'll say, well, it's really an economic issue. Someone was afraid that their cow would be stolen. And all of that is a way to not confront you know, the, the, the sheer horror that someone can be accused, often falsely, but whether or not it's false doesn't matter, but someone can be accused and merely that accusation uh, that you have uh, killed or eaten a cow or calf can be enough to have a, a, a mob gather and pulp you to death. Uh, this, is, this is very akin to what happens if you're accused of blasphemy in Pakistan, right? It's, it's essentially the same, same concept. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. And the fact, and you know, it's, it's one thing to say that, okay, uh, it's a big country and bad stuff happens. But it's another thing to try and somehow justify some of this. And, and, and that's unfortunately what we see. Yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of agree that um, I think it's possible to exaggerate what, um, what's going on because you have to always keep in mind the denominator is so large in India. One of the gravest problems to me is the fact that people feel too intimidated to be able to talk openly about these things. Right, and the and the room to talk about things, right? I mean, and this is something that you know you you would have followed closely too with your work with Quilliam and your look at and your work on 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 radical Islam, right? What happens when certain topics simply become taboo? So, for example, in Pakistan, you can't really have a calm serious discussion about blasphemy right you can't you're not allowed to have a discussion which starts with the premise that this whole thing is just made up um you're seeing something similar happen in india now where people are scared to sort of discuss these things in terms of first principles uh why is it such a terrible thing i mean you can disagree with someone converting but why is it something so terrible Right? Why is it so terrible to, you know, if someone wants to eat whatever they want to eat? Um, it's essentially some of these more fundamental questions now are clothed in fear. And uh, people are loath to, to talk about this. And in part because, you know, they're worried that, uh, you know, an, an army of, uh, of, of crazy trolls will descend on you. And on the most extreme cases, and I'm saying this is not common, it's rare, but we have had you know, a few cases of prominent atheists who were killed um, by, by and, and in fact, the, you know, the people where there has been violence, the people who have been killed for their thoughts have really been atheists who have uh, uh, basically offended um, some of these uh, extreme Hindu nationalist groups. And this is not, I mean, this, and these are groups that are, you know, in fact, outside of the RSS umbrella, which are even sort of more, you know, more extreme. And I'm not saying that this is commonplace. And I'm not saying that India is uh, in the same place as much of the Islamic world. 
But what I am saying is that it's certainly true that the 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 trend line is discouraging, and the space that we have to talk about these things uh, calmly is uh, increasingly non-existent in India. And uh, you know, and so if you want to have this kind of conversation, you and I can have this conversation because ni- neither of us are over there. A large part of the problem, it seems to me, is that the Indian constitution and Indian law don't provide robust free speech protections, especially where religious and so-called religious sentiments are concerned. Well, it's never had freedom of speech of the sort that you would enjoy, say, in the US with the First Amendment. And it's certainly true that, again, if you kind of go back to the original sins of the early founders... Uh, in fact, the first restrictions on freedom of speech were placed because uh, there was a worry that some of the stories of what was happening, some of the brutality and violence that was taking place against Hindus and Sikhs in Pakistan would filter into India and create uh, a backlash against Indian Muslims and create violence. So those were, you know, the the, the very early free speech res- free speech restrictions um, go back to the early years after after partition, um, and it's certainly true that the uh, the ruling elites, the secularists who who dominated the country uh, until you know more or less until two thousand and fourteen, uh, were not great believers in Western style, style free speech. Um, There's no question about that, right? The satanic versus case being the most classic example. But again, I think that there's a difference between people who selectively uphold an ideal or imperfectly uphold an ideal and another group of people, many of whom don't believe in that ideal at all. And I think that's what you're seeing here. I don't know if you've been following the case of the this Iranian-Canadian atheist, Armin Nawabi. So Armin, yeah, so Armin was a hero of some of these, you know, Hindu right groups. They couldn't get enough of him because he was saying all these nasty things about Muhammad and nasty things about Islam. So they were sort of, they were hailing him as this wonderful, great free thinker. And then he says, well, you know, I'm just not a very religious person. So let me say a few things about Kali and Durga and Sita too. And suddenly you have thousands of people mass reporting him on Twitter. His Twitter account has been suspended um, attacking him, attacking his uh, late mother in the most, you know, disgusting, sexualized manner. And, you know, that's that's the problem. Um, if you want to criticize the uh, secularists for not living up to the highest standards of free speech, you would be absolutely accurate. But it's not clear if the people who've replaced them have any conception or any idea of standing up for free speech. I mean, what they would really like, or what many of them would really like, is their own version of blasphemy law. I mean, all they want, you know, is is the right to police speech that they don't like. One way to think about it is that, you know, for all its flaws, in many ways, India was the great exception in the subcontinent, right? This is not a part of the world that does minority rights very well, right? Would you really like to be an Ahmadi in, or a Shia uh, in Pakistan, let alone a Christian or a, or a, or a Hindu? Uh, would you like to be a Tam- Would you like to be a Tamil in Sri Lanka, uh, a, a Buddhist or, or or a Hindu in uh, Bangladesh? And you know the answer is no. 
And it's not as though minorities in India always had a wonderful time. You know, I mean, if you go back and look at the history of riots in India, uh, disproportionately, the number of people who would die would, would disproportionately be, be, uh, be Muslims. But nonetheless, India was an outlier to the extent that it had a formally secular, or it still has, but a formally secular constitution. It had a, a secularized elite. And I think a lot of this goes back to the 19th century and the collision of uh, Western learning, of the collision of Indian elites and Western, le- Western learning. And what you saw was that Hindu elites, of course, Parsi elites also, but they're just far fewer in number. But um, Hindu elites disproportionately took to Western learning. And these are the people who disproportionately led the independence struggle. Uh, even, you know, someone like, you know, someone like Gandhi was educated in England. Nehru, of course, was extremely anglicized. Patel was, a, was a studied law in, uh, in England, too. Uh, Bose, I mean, you, you, you name it. Uh, you look at the sort of the, the, the leading figures of the nationalist movement. They were all deeply familiar with uh, Western political ideas. And in many ways, what you're seeing now is just a reversion to the norm. You know, this is a part of the world. And I have absolutely no doubt that, you know, if, if, if uh, Uttar Pradesh today were, you know, 90% Muslim and 10% Hindu, the people who'd be persecuted would be the Hindus, Right. It's, it's not as though any one group has suddenly uh, embraced enlightenment principles. Um, but what you have is uh, one group that had done, had embraced them better than others, and that was Indian elites of all religions. And now those elites are no longer in power. And the people who are in power, they, they, don't, they may sometimes pay lip service to these ideas, but in many ways, these ideas are completely alien to their way of thinking. I think we should not underestimate the achievements of the Indian founders and of India after independence. India is a massive outlier among secular democracies in its diversity, its poverty, in the brief time that it has been a democracy. I'm also a citizen of Argentina, and Argentina was founded in 1816 and has only been a democracy for 37 years. During most of its history, Argentina lurched from one military dictatorship to another. So the fact that Indians created a civil, secular, multicultural democracy and have sustained that for 73 years is extraordinary. It makes me vicariously proud of my Indian heritage. I've written about this, actually. I'll link the article in the show notes. No, and I think the... the Absolutely. You know, I mean, for all its flaws, the Indian project, the Indian democratic pluralistic project is a thing of great beauty to have managed that degree of pluralism and social harmony at extremely low levels of per capita income was quite unprecedented. And when India at independence, when, you know, when India adopted universal suffrage, it was the first country in, you know, in the history of humanity to have uh, adopted universal suffrage before it had attained universal literacy. And, you know, the conventional thinking was that the odds were completely against uh, democracy taking root in India. And in fact, democracy has uh, taken very deep root 
The problem is that increasingly what we see is uh, an electoral democracy and less and less of a liberal democracy. And this is why the two sides are really talking past each other. Because again, if you talk to a BJP supporter and you were to, you know, make the kinds of, you know, the kind of pushback I always get is that, well, you know, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're some kind of English speaking elite and you write for the Wall Street Journal and you live in Washington, D.C. And uh, you you speak with your friends and your family in English and you're just not representative of the uh, Indian experience. And I, and I, and I think that, you know, there is a, there's a certain amount of uh, truth in that in that charge. Um, the The problem is that the the conception of democracy, the way many people in India see this, is that it's all about the majority will and not at all about minority rights. So my favorite example of this is that sometimes I do Twitter polls just to get a sense of what people are thinking. And so if I you know if I sort of you know do it. Twitter poll and sort of ask someone a question. Um, let's just say it's something about: uh, Do you think the Kashmiris should be deprived of the internet? Like hypothetically, right? Now, if eighty percent of the people answer that question in the affirmative and say yes, this is a good thing, they take that to mean that I should change my view because it has been endorsed by the majority. And I try to explain to them that actually that's not how it works. Like if I ask you whether your favorite color is red or blue and 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 80% of you say it's red, I'm still allowed to think that my favorite color is blue. And sort of these kind of these fundamental things, right, uh, are, 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 are things that are just not very well understood. And in a way you can understand where they're coming from, right? Because this idea of, of democracy always, you know, con- contains this balance, right? First of all, it's a it's the concentration of power, but it's also checks and balances. And I think for a people who have largely not had self-rule, the the overriding uh, focus has been on the concentration of power, right? The idea that you can have a centralized state, the idea that you could have an army, all of these things are so new and so exciting. And so the idea of putting checks on that power, that is much more alien. And that's where we're suffering right now. And so if you look at the state of the judiciary, if you look at the media, if you look at all the institutions, look at the opposition, all the institutions that are designed to prevent tyranny, uh, those actually have very weak roots. And we were under the impression that they were being strengthened uh, over the course of the last 30 years. But it turns out that all that was happening was that political power was splintered. And because India did not have a strong central government, the judiciary and the media and, and were, were able to, and, and, and state governments were able to uh, have louder voices. And now that we see a powerful state government, a powerful central government, uh, what you're seeing is that these institutions, it turns out, uh, are quite hollow and really, when push comes to shove, quite powerless. I was following this closely, but for the benefit of our listeners who might not have been, could you tell us more about the recent citizenship laws, the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Register of Citizens? 
Just before the Indian COVID-19 lockdown began, there were huge protests at these laws as discriminatory against Muslims. So, this, so you know, the citizenship laws are, I think it's a classic example of, uh, of the two sides really talking past each other. So in a nutshell, what the, the, what the law does is that it allows members of six religions from, the, from three neighboring countries, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan, to get fast-track naturalization in India. That's the essence of the law. And the religions are Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, uh, Christianity, and I don't know what the sixth is. It may be it may be Zoroastrianism. I'm not sure. So in any case, these sort of six faiths. But the the important part is that they deliberately exclude Islam from the list. Now, if you talk to people who support this law, they'll say that, well, look, why should you have Islam on the list when, first of all, for historical reasons, it shouldn't be there because uh, Pakistan and both wings of Pakistan, what is now Bangladesh and Pakistan, were created on the basis of religion. So obviously you have no religious persecution of uh, Muslims for being Muslim in either Bangladesh or Pakistan. And uh, obviously the same is true of Afghanistan. The people who are being persecuted for their religion are members of these minority faiths. And if they have fled to India facing persecution, it is uh, what is wrong with allowing them to speed up the process of naturalization. And in fact, that's, uh, that's on the face of it, a fairly reasonable argument, right? Um, I don't think it would be remotely feasible or practical, for example, to say that the law would apply equally to everybody from Pakistan and Bangladesh, because then potentially that would mean that you have fast track citizenship for, you know, hundreds of millions of Pakistanis and Bangladeshis if they cross the border into India. So that would not be practical. However, they could have they could have passed a law that shows some kind of compassion for persecuted religious minorities in these countries, while at the same time upholding the idea that India is a secular country that does not discriminate based on religion, simply by including a couple of persecuted Muslim groups. Everybody knows the kind of hell that the Ahmadis go through in Pakistan. Everybody knows what's happening with the Shia Hazara. These are very small groups uh, most of them, in any case, wouldn't be wouldn't be lining up to come to India. They'd much rather go to the West. And so it was very easy for them to pass the same law, show some concern towards Hindus and Buddhists and others who are persecuted in these countries. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, maintain your own commitment to be to being a secular nation. Or they could have just not mentioned any religion in the law. They could have just said, members of persecuted religious minorities, right? That automatically kind of, you know, takes care takes care of the question. When I raised this issue, I wrote about it uh, more than once uh, in the journal, and I raised this issue with someone in, in the government, and I said, oh, why don't you just, you know, I, I understand that you don't want to be swamped in, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen, but I can understand your the, the theoretical fear that you don't want 
um, vast numbers of uh, Pakistanis and Bangladeshis to cross into India. That would be politically untenable, and it would also kind of fly against the face of partition. Okay, fair enough. Let's let's give you that argument. But why don't you just include a couple of small groups? Like, look at the Bangladeshi atheist bloggers. They are being persecuted for their for their faith or lack of faith. Why don't you have some kind of provision for them? And this person turned around and said to me that, well, you know, and so, so says, well, and I said, why why do you want to rub it in the in the rub Muslim noses in it? And he's like, well, you know, the whole point is to rub their noses in it. And that's sort of the first part of the problem. The second part, which is really what sparked the protest. So the first part is that it that it it hurts Indian secularism by for the first time introducing a religious test, right? You can get this fast track naturalization as long as you're not Muslim. The second part, which is even more insidious, is that the plan, which has been shelved temporarily, but the plan was to marry this citizenship act with something called the National Register of Citizens, which is essentially a giant uh, database. And basically, it would allow it would ask people to sh- to uh, provide all kinds of documentation to prove that they were really Indian. And this is where it gets really sinister. Um, you know, in India, many people don't have documents. People don't even know. I mean, older people don't even know when they were born, let alone have sort of you know birth certificates and that kind of thing. It's a you know it's 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 not a de- it's not a developed society. But along, if you coupled this with the CAA, what it would mean is that as long as you weren't Muslim, it wouldn't matter because you'd still get fast tracked into the citizenship. And Muslims who can't prove their citizenship would essentially be in limbo. And this is not theoretical. Some of this is already happening in Assam. And uh, the, the worry is that they would then apply this across all of India and leave the Indian Muslim minority in, in, in limbo. The best case scenario would be that their names would be struck off the voting list. And so they'd be disenfranchised. And the worst case scenario would, you know, would range all the way to um, them being uh, interred, interned in mass detention camps. And after the protest, the government has kind of stepped back on the National Register of Citizens part. But it's a very cleverly crafted and sinister legislation, the CAA, because on the face of it, if you argue against it, they turn around and say, why are you so heartless? What have you got against some poor, persecuted Sindhi Hindu who fled Pakistan in terror because, you know, their daughter was abducted by some landlord, for example. And when you kind of push back and you say that you have absolutely nothing against that and you're all for uh, their citizenship being fast-tracked, however, you also think that India should abide by its constitutional commitment to secularism. Uh, that argument, the pushback becomes too sophisticated, right? And you get, and you get, and, and you can get drowned out in in the noise. How have COVID nineteen and the response to the pandemic affected the political situation in India? I think that you're going to see, you're seeing already, and I kind of, uh, I think this love jihad stuff happening in the middle of, you know, the, the the conspiracy theory has been bubbling for a while, but I don't think it's a coincidence that five states have decided to pass laws at this time. Uh, people are looking, quite frankly, for distractions. 
And this is a kind of environment which in many places, you know, it's uh, uh, created conditions for uh, kind of mass hysteria, but also created con- conditions for people to believe in conspiracy theories, right? And so we have QAnon, for example, uh, in, in, in the U.S. I, I call Love Jihad QAnon. Uh, it's the it's it's the it's the Hindu nationalist equivalent, um, and and so um, that's the that's that's one thing. Uh, the big unanswered question is what does this do to Modi? Uh, we've been seeing these farmer protests that are going on now, and uh, I think it's too early to say what it what it does to Modi. He's an extremely popular leader. He's extremely powerful. The BJP is the most powerful and well funded party in India by a mile. But what we're not sure is in after six years of Modi rule, does the fact that India has suffered grievously during COVID, uh, does the fact that the economy is, has gone into a recession for the first time since independence, does that mean that we are now looking at a period of turbulence and turmoil and uh, a decline in the uh, government's power leading up to the uh, next election in 2024, or has Modi consolidated to such an extent uh, in terms of his own power, his own charisma, the power of his party, the kind of funding advantage it include, it, it enjoys, uh, the fact that the uh, much of the media is aligned effectively with the ruling party? Are we looking at an extended period of Hindu nationalist rule? And are we looking at the next generation of leaders coming down the pike who will put in place policies that are, uh, you know, more extreme and more nakedly discriminatory against uh, against minorities? I think at this point, uh, your guess is as good as mine. But I think those are the two kind of, you know, uh, the two possibilities that either, either India kind of, you know, this is a normal democratic process. and this is cyclical and the, the BJP rules for some time and then some non-BJP parties take power. But we may also be looking at something akin to, you know, what we saw in the Indira Gandhi era, where she completely obliterated the opposition and uh, more or less dominated the country for the better part of two decades. So Danant, is there anything you wish you could have said that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, nothing really. I think we covered a lot of ground and so looking forward to the you have to brace brace yourself for the trolls once this is once this is aired. But I'll give you that little little word of warning. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm always particularly tickled by the claim that so many of them repeat that Hindus are dying out. There are one point two billion of them. Please don't talk to me about dwindling numbers. I'm a Parsi. Well, it's it's also but it's, it's also entirely fantastical, right? So they don't. It's not a rational argument, right? You could have a rational discussion about religious demographics in the subcontinent, and it'll tell you that there is a gentle decline in the proportion of Hindus. But that's not the conversation that they want to have, right? The conversation they want to have is that by next Tuesday, India is going to look like Afghanistan. Thank you so much for joining me, Sadanand. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for listening, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. 
Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.